0: Thanks for your support, Jason. I appreciate yours and Carrie's support and your whole network. It's really been very beneficial to me and and a whole lot of others. I encourage everyone to use your resources that you have. But thanks, Jason.
1: Welcome to episode 1255, 1255. Five. Thanks for joining us today. We've got the second half of yesterday's interview talking about the Atlas Society and the value of labor versus capital and what that means in the economy. Today, we got a few things to talk about before we get to part 2 of that. I've got Adam back with me. Adam, welcome.
2: Good to be back.
1: So, we're going to talk about refinance eligibility cash out refis, what that means to the overall market. But first, I want to talk about microscopic creatures. Very real estate
2: specific stuff here.
1: This this has very little to do with (laughs) real estate. (laughs) But I was fascinated by this. And I just have to share it with our listeners. So did you know, dear listeners, before we get to the new refi rules and refi eligibility, uh, and we talk about money, that there are these microscopic creatures, and I believe they're called tardigrades. What a weird name. And they can live almost anywhere. In fact... An Israeli probe that landed on the moon took a bunch of these with them and left them on the moon. And apparently these things, these creatures, they think they're still alive living on the moon. They think they're the only creature that can live on the moon. Adam, this is crazy. (laughs) Yeah,
2: but they say they can't colonize because they need atmosphere and liquid water. So they're just going to kind of hang to out reproduce.
1: Yeah. yeah they can they can hang out and live but they cannot procreate yeah.
2: so uh, I love without... this quote it said but it could be possible to bring them back to earth and then add water
1: <laughs> I, I know this is like the <laughs> like craziest like a chia thing. pet
2: you just bring it in yeah. you add some water and suddenly you got it. <laughs> This is the craziest creature ever, right?
1: Okay. This microscopic creature. So the article says, when humans return to the moon, they may find other living creatures waiting for them. The cargo on an Israeli private lunar lander, private, by the way, not a government lunar lander. It's called Bereshit, I guess, that crashed into the moon's surface in April, okay, included a box full of a few thousand dehydrated tardigrades, The microscopic creatures considered one of the toughest animals on the planet, well, (laughs) and now on the moon, okay, are the only known living things thought to be able to survive in outer space per Newsweek. Boy, Newsweek's still around? I thought they went out of business. I guess they're still around. Probably it's not okay.
2: print anymore. It's just a website.
1: Yeah, yeah. Okay, and they may be doing that now. It says, quote, our payload may be the only surviving thing from that mission. The founder of the U.S.-based organization that put the Lunar Library on – sheet, including the Tardigrades, told Wired magazine, right? Okay, so they could live there for years. Tardigrades can survive pressures comparable to the ones created when asteroids strike Earth, an expert tells The Guardian. So a small crash like this is nothing to them, okay? Adam, what else does it say?
2: I mean, they can go up to 304 degrees Fahrenheit. They so, so they can live...
1: In 304 degrees Fahrenheit yeah. that, that's totally amazing okay
2: They just get rid of all their water and hang out apparently. I mean that's yeah, <laughs> so, yeah if you can so... survive an asteroid strike, I think you're you're gonna be just you're... fine. <laughs>
1: You're pretty good. So, you know, we've all heard about cryogenics, right? And I actually on my longevity and biohacking show, I interviewed two companies, two different companies on two different episodes that actually freeze people and they think one day they may be able to bring them back to life. Right, we can't do this yet, and the reason why is because our bodies have so much water in the cells, right? And once the water is frozen, now I, I'm no scientist, okay? I'm 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 just a layperson, but the basic idea is, once the water is frozen, including the water in our cells of our bodies, right, it changes its whole nature and cannot be brought back. It's a different. It's a whole different. Ball game then, right? But these little creatures can be frozen. It says one survived being frozen for 30 years. Okay, for 30 years it was frozen. That's because they can expel all of the water in their cells and continue living in a dormant, what's called a ton, T-U-N state, with their metabolic processes switched off until rehydrated. Like you said, just add water like a Chia Pet, right? (laughs) Dehydrated, inactive tardigrades have been rehydrated and revived up to a decade later, possibly even longer. Still, they won't be able to multiply on the lunar surface. They cannot colonize the moon because there is no atmosphere and no liquid water, the expert says.
2: That just means we haven't been up there long enough yet.
1: Yeah, yeah. It could be a chance. but listen to this could be possible to bring them back to earth and then add water and they should resurrect. Wow. I just had to share that because I thought it was quite fascinating.
2: And it says okay, here they're yeah. likely to see the sun die. So they're going to be around a while.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's they, they're the only creature that will uh, live long enough to see our sun eventually die. Wow. Crazy story. Okay. Adam in other news <laughs>
2: <laughs> in real estate news.
1: Yeah, this is a real estate show, right? What's that have to do with creating wealth? I don't know, but had to share.
2: Well, I mean, I guess it could have something to do with creating wealth because if you get to travel to the moon with Elon Musk or anything like that, you can go hang out and go see if you can find any of them.
1: That's right. And, and will that be before or after the Tesla bankruptcy, the upcoming Tesla <laughs> bankruptcy? <laughs> we'll
2: he'll see. still have the money.
1: Yeah, he'll have the money. That's true. And he's got his other companies. But uh, yeah. Okay, so let's talk about refinancing. The lower interest rates, hugely significant. The lower rates have already made another 8.2 million eligible For refinance. And if if the rates drop another eighth of a percentage point, it would push that total to 9.7 million. This is according to HousingWire. Tell us a little more, Adam.
2: So essentially, as the rates continue to go down, people become more and more incentivized to actually refinance because, you know, with rates where they were before, you know, as they were going up, people who had 4% rates, 3.5% rates, it didn't make any sense for them Financially to do it. But as the rates continued going down, at some point you get to the, the rate where even if it's not the exact same rate, it still makes sense financially because you can pull your money out and use it somewhere else. And so as it gets down, just more and more people are becoming eligible for it and taking advantage of it.
1: So here's the thing. I always talk about my trademark idea of refi till you die, refi till ya die uh, slang. In the refi till you die plan, I was illustrating back in 2004, 2005, 2006, a 12-year plan for refi till you die. So it's now 2019. So if you bought a property from me back in 2007... You went to my Creating Wealth seminar, and you thought that refi to die plan looks good. It's 2007. You've stuck with your properties and your portfolio, and now it's 12 years later, just like I talk about on the plan, okay? And you know what would be interesting is to do a real history of that and look at the rates then and the rates now, the prices then and the prices now, and see if that plan really came true. I think it did. It probably came true much better than I thought, actually. And so you now refi those properties. You do cash out. And we're going to get to talk about cash out in just a quick moment, because the rules have changed on that, which I think are actually quite good. You can follow that exact plan that I outlined starting way back in 2004, okay, 15 years ago. And take advantage of this. And I mean, these low rates are, are, nothing but incredible. It's amazing.
2: Yeah. And they're expecting total originations to rise 7% year over year in 2019. And that means
1: loan originations. Right.
2: And they're expecting refinances to account for 32% of that this year, which is up from 29% in 2018. So you're looking at a 10% increase in loan originations just Mm -hmm. due to the fact that more people can refinance.
1: Now, don't underestimate, dear listeners, the impact of that on the overall economy. That pumps a lot of money into the mortgage market. So all those mortgage reps, all those people connected with the mortgage industry, the appraisers, the closing agents, the title companies, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, they're making money. Off those refinances. That is hugely significant that money flows into the economy and a lot of stuff happens. And then If the owner of the property took cash out, that money has a hugely stimulative effect as well. They might remodel, they'll spend it somewhere, okay, or invest it somewhere. So that's really incredible. Um, But it's not back to the crazy point that it was before the Great Recession, where people are using their houses like ATM machines, because the rules are considerably tighter than They were before. So this is much more prudent refinancing activity than we saw the last time around. With that, Adam, I know you wanted to talk about how FHA changed the rules on cash out refinances, right?
2: Yeah. So before, I think back in the Great Recession time, I believe the loan to value, had you could pull out up to 95% of your money that was in your, you know, of your equity. But now it's currently at 85% and they're changing it to 80%. So more people are eligible for refis at this point, thanks to the economy. But people are going to be able to take out less money, which will hopefully provide a more stable housing market as people have more skin still in the game and hopefully don't walk away from their mortgages as much.
1: I think that's absolutely right. You know, that's good. It's prudent. In the refi till you die plan, we only discuss going to an 80% loan-to-value for cash-out refinance. That's exactly the way we've illustrated that plan. You know, I was showing that way back in 2004, 15 years ago, and the interest rates are considerably, well, they're much lower than they were then, and just super desirable mortgage climate. So, uh, hey, longtime clients and listeners, refi till you die. It's a great plan. Now, when you refi... You don't get to take advantage of the big, boring idea, which we presented at the last Meet the Masters in Newport Beach, California. It's one or the other. You are getting the advantage of that up until the time you refi till you die, but only up until then. So if you don't do the refi, if for some reason your situation doesn't make sense to do the refi till you die plan, at least not at this juncture, then you're automatically taking advantage of what we call the big boring idea, another one of our trademark terms, the big boring idea, which is amortization, something that really becomes quite significant later in the game. Certainly 12 years in, it's very significant. And I illustrated that from stage at Meet the Masters. And by the way, we're about to announce dates for our Profits in Paradise event in Orlando, Florida. So if you want to take a trip to Disney World or Epcot Center and uh, learn how to make Profits in Paradise, it'll be our, very, our only our second Profits in Paradise event. We launched that event last year in Hawaii. It was just a beautiful event. A little far away, for sure. (laughs) This one's a lot easier. Uh, Lots of direct flights to Orlando. Very easy destination. And we've got just such a great hotel venue, I think. We haven't signed the deal yet with the hotel, but I really like this venue quite well. So look for more info on that real soon. We're we're very close to making an announcement and uh, offering some early bird tickets. And of course, before that, we have our cruise, our beautiful... uh, New England and Canadian cruise coming up in October. So go to jasonhartman.com. It's right on the front page. Or if you want the direct link, it's jasonhartman.com slash cruise. So join us for that. Adam, are we ready to go to the second half of yesterday's interview? Let's
2: finish it up. All right,
1: let's do it. Here we go. How much should capital be rewarded versus how much should labor be rewarded? It does seem to me that capital is rewarded pretty highly nowadays, in at least in the U.S. And, you know, those on the left would say labor doesn't get enough reward. You know, why are people at Walmart only making minimum wage versus, uh, the? you know, I heard Bernie Sanders yesterday yelling about the Walmart family is, you know, they got a company worth $180 billion and people are making $11 an hour, blah, blah, blah. You know, where do you, how do you rationalize that?
0: If we were talking about a genuinely free economy,
1: mm-hmm.
0: people who invest and have the insight and risk tolerance to create a business in the first place, they are creating the opportunity for other people to work and earn money by, in the form of a salary or a wage. And that's something that didn't exist before the business created and the investors behind it created the, organ- the company in the first place. So, you know, people get used to saying, well, you know, there ought to be a job for everybody. Well, wait a minute. Who creates those jobs? So the people who are working at Walmart, they chose to work there. They could leave. The Walmart family is not going to their house with guns and dragging them in and making them work at gunpoint. Sure. They're choosing to do that.
1: Yeah, right.
0: Now, the way an economy works is. It's competitive. There's competition among businesses to get uh, workers, rival businesses, consumers, but there are also competition for workers. Absolutely. And it ends up being supply and demand.
1: The funny thing that's happened in today's world is somehow this country has degraded to the point where people think these what should be transient minimum wage jobs are like permanent careers. Since when did that, that wasn't that way when I was a kid. No one thought that, hey, I'm going to go to work at Walmart or McDonald's for the rest of my life or be in food service. These were transitional things that, you know, young people did to get their life going. Now, somehow it's considered a career. I don't get it. What happened?
0: (laughs) Well, the more people adopt an entitlement mentality, the more they think they're entitled to this, that, and the other thing. I mean, we have entitlement programs like Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, welfare, et cetera. But the entitlement mentality is broader than that. It's the idea that it's somebody else's responsibility to create a job that will give me a salary that I'm comfortable with. No, you're not entitled to that. People will offer it because it's a good deal if you are willing and able to work. I can tell you, as as having created and run the Atlas Society for almost 30 years, I was desperate for good people. <laughs> when I found someone with God, he would do almost anything for them within the realm of financial possibility. And I think, I mean, especially today, a lot of people in business are saying, you know, they're scrambling to find workers any way they can. So, you know, going back to the entitlement mentality, people are, we've partly created that entitlement mentality through Government programs that offer a lot of entitlements.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, of uh, course. That create yeah.
0: things like the minimum wage, right? Yeah. And also a really awful aspect of the mixed economy today is the kind of mostly municipal licensing that makes it extremely difficult for very poor people, especially you know minorities, blacks mm-hmm. in New York, and yep. Hispanics elsewhere. They can't just start a business on right. their own. They've got to get this license and that license. Yeah, and, absolutely. You know, absolutely. And, you, know.
1: you see, in developing countries, you see people selling stuff on the street. Now, granted, those countries have a capital formation problem, and that's why they're selling stuff on the street rather than buying a franchise and opening a real store. But at least they can be entrepreneurs. The regulation here prohibits people from doing that. You get arrested if you open a lemonade stand, you know. Yeah. The minimum wage causes unemployment. Because when the government gets in the middle of a transaction that two parties want to do, but the government says, no, you can't do this because we're making it illegal, then you have no meritocracy, right? If the really low skilled people want a job and you want to pay them five bucks an hour versus 10 bucks an hour, what business of the government to get in the middle of that?
0: I mean, where did that come from? (laughs) (laughs) Labor. I mean, in purely economic terms, labor is like any other commodity. There's supply, there's demand. And the demand for labor, on the part of those who have jobs to offer, is a demand that's based on what can this person produce? That person has to be able to produce, you know, enough to cover the wage that I have to pay them if I'm the owner. So for minimum wage people, that's even if you have to start at a very low salary, like you $5 an hour if you're any good, you're not going to stay. You're going to go up.
1: Yeah. You're going to rise. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. I know.
0: I mean, I started working at 16, you know, picking up trash in the city parks at a yeah. dollar, I think it was a dollar 15 hour.
1: Right. Right. Right.
0: I didn't do that for very long. <laughs>
1: right. Exactly. And, you know, exactly.
0: It's not just because yeah. I, I mean, I had lots of advantages, uh, so I'm not, comparing myself sure. to uh, yeah i get it. People I get it. Who, who are in much worse situations but that's a universal trait well I well mean, listen so i did i didn't, that didn't have lots of
1: advantages advance. and i somehow figured it out and you know everybody starts off with you know rich parents poor parents tragedies. Uh, Some people rise above them. Others don't. We've all heard the stories, Horatio Alger, Rags to Rich's stories. Look at, there's more socioeconomic mobility in the U.S. than probably any other country on Earth. So the point is if we have this embedded mentality in our culture of entitlement that is toxic because everybody is just going to act like they have a chip on their shoulder and they're never going to do anything. It's so disempowering, isn't it?
0: It is. It's really appalling today because the, the polarization that everyone talks about is It's partly political and that's one domain, but there's also just a kind of much wider sense of antagonism among people that I'm seeing everywhere. I'm seeing on campuses, I'm seeing in workers In to some extent in the Me Too movement, although there are many cases, there are many valid points that the uh, feminists make there. But still, I would say there are two things that people are just not getting. One is that when you make a trade, it's win-win. If you're free to make that trade or not, um, you're not going to make it unless you think what you're getting is better than what you have to give up. And that includes saving for the future, which also brings in the second point. That's an exercise of rationality. And that's one of the reasons I'm so big on Ayn Rand, because that's one of her core virtues is being rational. And the whole idea that you can just not even think about the future is irrational.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, wrap this up for us, if you would, and just answer one more question. What is the difference between closed objectivism and open objectivism? I, I'd never heard that before. There's some distinction there, right?
0: Yeah, this goes back to the conflict I was having back in the late 80s and 90s, which led me to found the, uh, my organization, a conflict with the, the Ayn Rand Institute. The idea of closed objectivism, as I understand it, is that objectivism as a philosophy is all but only what Ayn Rand said or wrote or endorsed um, while she was alive. That is, it's a fixed closed system. Nothing will be added to the philosophy. It is complete. And all we can do is expound what Rand said. To me as an intellectual, as a philosopher, that struck me as crazy when I began to realize that that was part of the operating policy, I think of objectivism as a body of knowledge, like any other body of knowledge. I mean, I use Darwin as, as an example, Darwin, you know, was a genius who created the theory of evolution, but the theory of evolution didn't stop with Darwin. Darwinism, you know, we could say keeps expanding by people who biologists who are adding to his insights, standing on his shoulders. And you'd say the same thing about you know, physics and Isaac Newton or Einstein. So I think there are a lot of questions in philosophy that Ayn Rand did not address. I mean, it's amazing the number that she did. I mean, she was a genius, but there's still lots of questions that we'd like to develop good and solid answers to. And so that means the idea of open objectivism is that the philosophy is open to expansion, mm-hmm. to possible revision. If yeah, we got find it. out got that the things have to be revised, not the core principles. It does have a core set of ideas. If I believed that those were false, I would certainly not call myself an objectivist. But I think there are lots of things that are not at at the surface. And that's what I do as a philosopher is explore and write about those issues. And I I think I've advanced the philosophy Mm -hmm. in various ways.
1: Good, good. Wrap up the discussion we were having and give out your website for us. So just go back to the discussion and just give us a closing thought on that and, and give out your website if you would
0: our website is um, atlassociety.org. We have a huge library of articles going back over 30 years about the philosophy. We also have lots and lots of videos, audio courses, and we also have now a very active Facebook page. So you can just search for Atlas Society on uh, Facebook. We have one of our things that we do a lot of is uh, the graphic memes you know just a picture and a saying and it should, um, to make
1: a quick point you know yeah
0: a quick point yeah it, so to but they're they're very effective I know your listeners who might be interested or who are already familiar with Ayn Rand to um, take a look at the site and I think what you'll find there among many other things is much more discussion of the kinds of issues that Jason you and I have been talking about mm-hmm. Especially, you know, the difference between crony capitalism and real capitalism, Mm -hmm. the role of the effects of government intervention on the economy in all the different ways it does, everything from Social Security to minimum wage to occupational licensure, right down the board.
1: These are very important topics. So go check out atlassociety.org. And Dr. David Kelly, thanks again for joining us.
0: Thanks, Jeff. My pleasure.